This episode is sponsored by digital publishing platform Issue. When I asked two Tonys, how would you kill me right now when I was in his cell, just thinking he would explain it to me, he just jumped up, grabbed an electrical cord attached to a heating filament called a stinger, got behind me very rapidly, tied it around my neck and started to choke. Greeting us on today's episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold is former crime boss and ecstasy smuggler Sean Atwood. Born to a middle-class household in the northwest of England, Sean became a stock market genius as a teenager, starting at just 14 years old, before he became hooked by the rave scene that swept through the country. Ecstasy was a huge part of that, and before he knew it, Sean was dealing. In fact, he smuggled around £10 million of E between 1997 and 2002. Rich beyond his wildest dreams, he went to America and set up the Atwood Enterprise. There, he worked alongside top players in the Mafia, competing with Sammy the Bull from the Gambino crime family, among other top mobsters. You might say he was living life to the fullest, but what comes up must come down, and Sean was arrested at his apartment after 10 witnesses came forward. At one point, he was facing 200 years in prison, and Sean contemplated suicide before it was reduced to nine. He served six years of his sentence in the prison with the highest death rate in America. While there, he turned to reading over 1,000 books and learned a lot about life and the kind of person he wanted to be. His story even featured on an episode of Banged Up Abroad. Today, Sean is free and at large. He gives talks at schools, campaigns against injustice and for prisoners' rights, and runs one of the country's largest podcasts with a YouTube following of almost a million. We go through his history talking about how he survived potential sexual assaults in prison and how he amassed a drug empire, while also discussing his latest book, Who Killed Epstein? Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton? Search Sean Atwood's True Crime channel for his YouTube page, where he interviews all sorts of fascinating characters. There's also a link in the show notes to that and his latest book. Any of Sean's fans here for this, please do subscribe. I think you'll enjoy the podcast series. Oh, and I just got verified, a big blue tick on Twitter, so that was very exciting this week. Do follow on andrewgold underscore OK. It's the same on Instagram. Sean is on Sean Atwood uh, on both, at Sean Atwood. Next week, I speak with former Love Island contestant turned brainiac Chris Williamson before discussing eugenics with Catherine Page Harden. But now, it's Sean Atwood. So, I'm Sean Atwood. I was from Witness, Cheshire, originally. Ended up moving to Phoenix, Arizona for like 16, 17 years. Well, as a young person, I made more money than I had common sense in the stock market. Flew my best mate over, wild man. Went full-time into the rave scene, throwing parties and importing ecstasy. And he ended up running an international ecstasy trafficking ring with about 200 people working for us and bumping heads with Sammy the Bull's crew. My listeners won't know that, that crew. Who were they? Sammy the Bull was the underboss for the Gambino crime family under John Gotti. So he was a co-conspirator in almost two dozen murders. Jesus. And he was ended up in witness protection. His family relocated to Tempe, Arizona. He came out of witness protection where he was called Jimmy Moran. His son, Gerard Govano, met this guy called Mike Papa, who was trafficking ecstasy. Mike Papa got Gerard involved. And unfortunately, Sammy ended up investing some money into that enterprise. So the prosecutors, because he's such a big name, they made this massive case out of it. And National Geographic just put a documentary about it called How E Busted the Bull. And it features his XC ring versus my XC ring. Sammy, to this day, you know, the old school code of the mafia is don't get involved in drugs, don't harm women and kids. So he, to this day, still denies any involvement in the ring, even though he's convicted of it, the police documented it and the media documented it. But to give him his credit, all he did was give his son money for it. But that does make you a co-conspirator in under the law. I didn't know that the mafia don't get involved in drugs. Is that right? There was an old school mafia code that you don't get involved in drugs, you don't harm women or kids. But those old schoolers got bumped out of the way because the 
black market in drugs created by drug laws became the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for organized crime. Wow. So the ones that did engage in the drug trafficking, you go back to Lucky Luciano, the, um, what was it called? The French Connection. You know, the ones that did get involved in the drug trafficking, they made so much money, their power grew, their weapons grew. So this day, you know, organized crime, the cartels, these guys have got more money than small countries. They're the most powerful criminal enterprises in the world. All wow. thanks to drug laws, making yeah, yes. plants that were worthless more valuable than gold. It's insane, isn't it? We've had uh, like yeah. Chris Dork, you see, who came on and thought he said that we should make all drugs legal. I imagine you also think that should Absolutely. Happen. Look at heroin in Portugal. They, you know, once the heroin users were no longer afraid of getting arrested, they spoke to the health teams and Portugal got the heroin users down to less than 50,000 from over 100,000. They said wow. that the old school war on drugs approach wasn't working and it's not working. It's caused, it's tearing the fabric of society apart all over the world from knife crime in London to all these people dead in Mexico, hundreds of thousands, all function of people competing for that black market in drugs created by drug laws. Mm. I've got a fly that's buzzing around my head at the moment. Oh, there was one in here just before I turned it all on. Fucking annoying because it makes it just, it just doesn't look, it's not a good look on YouTube, is it? Because we're talking about quite serious things and there's like a fly You know what? I had a video in my garden, like what what happens when a shot collar puts a green light on you? I did it in my garden like five, four or five years ago. Yeah. And a fly landed on my head <laughs> and I didn't even know it was there. And it's like walking around my head <laughs> and all the comments, like half the comments are about the fly and it made that video go viral. Oh, really? Oh. It's got over a million views. That's like that Breaking Bad episode, The Fly. That was their yeah. most famous one, I think. They're just trying to get the fly. They're trying to get the fly out of the out of the lab. They spend the whole day doing that. It did annoy me that episode. Yeah, it's a bit. It's, a, it's not the best episode, is it? It's a weird one. It's no. right in the middle of the series. Yeah. Mm. You want something to happen? Not much action, was there? I just the no. thing with the with a fly. It just it makes it feel like you you might smell bad or something. I've literally just had a shower and washed my hair, and then it's like popping around my hair. So. I don't want to well, if you that. if you look at um, soothsayers and the dark arts, flies mm. are associated with death, bubonic plague, and I've written the longest ever book about Pablo Escobar. It's called Pablo Escobar's yeah. story, and as he's getting near his demise, he's with some of his guys, and one guy is superstitious, and he's, this fly just will not leave Pablo alone. <sighs> And he's only, he's only got days to live at that point. <laughs> That's yep. funny. Maybe he yeah. just hadn't had a shower. Or maybe he had, because, you know, I've had a shower and the, the fly came over. He was in a bad way. He was quite sickly. He was quite sickly. He was in a bad way. Oh, yeah, by the end. Yeah. yeah. I lived in Medellin. I was there for about a year, year and a half. What year? Uh, or well after him, because I'm only yeah. 32. So this was about eight years ago, nine years ago. And did you do the tour? I didn't do the tour in the end. I don't know why that was. And the thing is, I was I was getting into documentary making back then. That's when I started, you know, before I went and did the Exorcist stuff in Argentina. Um, yeah. And I did meet up with some production companies. And obviously my first, the first thing I said was like, let's do something about Escobar. And they were like, we're so tired of Escobar. We, anything but Escobar drugs and plastic surgery because they were just done with it. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do? Like the flower festival. I mean, how, there's nothing left. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into, um, we're going to go into your story a bit. And also you've got a wonderful, I imagine, book coming out. I've not had time to read it yet. I typically read them, but I also only found out I'd, I'd get the opportunity to interview you a, a few days ago, which I'm very excited about. Um, but we'll get we'll get onto your book. And I want to just introduce you to the, aud the audience first. And I was just thinking, so you got interested in trading, obviously, at 14 years old. That's very unusual. Um, what kind of childhood and what kind of boy were you that led to, to that kind of thinking? Have you ever been to Witness? No. Have you been to Warrington? Uh, I've sort of gone past it, Cheshire sort of area, yeah. What about Wigan? Not Wigan, I know the football club. Okay, so all very friendly northern towns that are kind of clustered together. Growing up, you know, people left the doors open and you go to the shops and the post office and People say hello. And even when I got there now, coming from the South, you see like someone buying a newspaper and you say, thanks, love. Oh, hello, love. People say love a lot. Love. <laughs> um, so not much money. My mum in the beginning was a housewife, but later on she got a degree and ended up teaching 
kids with uh, special needs and things like that. Oh, My dad great. was a door-to-door insurance salesman who progressed to having his own insurance business. And I went to Sixth Form College after school. I didn't know whether I was going to go into computer programming or the stock market. They were my two interests. I was obsessed with computers. I had like an Atari 400, a Sinclair ZX Spectrum as well. And I was doing like little programs, programming little games and stuff back then. So to hedge my bets for sixth form, I did A-level maths, physics, and economics. So I could go either way. You were a smart kid. I would say I was exceedingly smart. I would say that mm. there were some subjects I had interest in and passion for. And I've got this manic energy that if I'm passionate <laughs> about something, I'm all in. So I was all in for economics and business studies. So that's what I ended up choosing to do by the time I'd finished six form college. Went to Liverpool University because that was the nearest one to my house. I enjoyed, you know, living with my family so much I didn't want to move out. So oh. I just commuted from home to university, originally on the um, the H five bus, but eventually got a little my mum's little I inherited my mum's little car. Oh. And um that was it, you know. I visited America as well as a teenager. So it dazzled me the lifestyle and how they rolled up the red carpet when they heard the English accent. So so I, I didn't know whether to apply for jobs in London or to go to America. And I was looking down both avenues, but America won out. And you got quite involved in the in the, this this was going to see was it your aunt or or something? And you got quite into the rave scene. Yeah. So I was into the rave scene when I was at uni because it had yeah. started and it was all these news headlines showing all these ravers breaking into warehouses, airplane hangers, all, you know, huge eyes, smiley faces. Yeah. Like, all loved up. Like, what's going on in this, this country? I want, a, <laughs> I want a bit of this. So yeah. one of my mates at my economic class took me to Manchester to this club. Took ecstasy, took speed. And didn't even want to stop dancing to take a pee. I was enjoying dancing so much. And this was someone who had anxiety and wouldn't dance. I was too self-conscious to dance before any of this. But on ecstasy, I was hugging strangers all night long and telling them my life story. It's amazing. Do you remember the first... Because Manchester is like it's the epicentre in the 90s, wasn't it? Of the whole rave scene yeah, and the yeah. music and everything. Do you remember the first time you actually tried ecstasy? Yeah, it was at the Thunderdome on Oldham Road. And my mate from economics class took us over to some Salford skinheads. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh shit, we're going to get robbed here or the cop's going to grab us. I've been watching Miami Vice, you know, and drug deals never yeah. ended very well. And uh, I'm like looking around and Gary's like, you know, give us some Billy Wiz and, and some some E. And uh, he took me into the men's room and explained, you know, you, you there's a gram, I think, in the wrap of Billy Wiz that you... What's Billy Wiz? Speed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you put a gram of powder... And yeah. Lucasade. So I chugged this Lucasade and drank this powder. And then I took this pill. Because when I walked in that club, it was all people just stood around the walls looking at the floor. And I thought, this is shit. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, it just kind of built up. Boom, boom. All these like signals from outer space, like, do, 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 do. Boom, boom, boom. Like, what is this? You know, my brain can't make sense of this weird... Are they trying to communicate with Martians? But once the ecstasy hit, I was walking to the bar. My mate, it already hit my mate. He's like, come on, dance. And I'm looking at him like, no way. I'm still paralyzed (laughs) at the prospect of dancing. So he just buggered off and started dancing. I'm walking to the bar, my knees buckle. And I'm on the floor then. And I just start smiling at all these jeans passing me by and these sneakers passing me by, looking up at people. And they're looking up at me with these big eyes and the exact same smile. Like we are some Martian race. And then all the noise, the beep, 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 beep. I could feel it just going into my brain, like talking to my brain. It's like get up, telling me to get off your ass and dance. All the music was making sense. And just as the music played, my arms were just... All the hair in my arms was rising. All the tickling went down my spine. And it was like, I was like, I was having an orgasm and I wasn't even being touched. <laughs> wow. You haven't taken any today, have you? No. No. It's a nice just memory, re- though. Just reliving it. 
The first time I took ecstasy when I was 18 or so, um, I had a similar experience, I think. But then because I had so much anxiety afterwards with the come down, I, I never took it again because I was just wow. so miserable. I'm told that the ecstasy these days is like not pure MDMA anymore. It's got all kinds in it. Again, a function of drug laws because the um, criminals running these things don't care. But back then, a good a good pill was like 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA. And I was happy for days. I woke up the next day with a smile <laughs> on my face if I could get to sleep. I sat in the finals after partying all weekend with all these beeps and beeps just going around and around in my head. That would terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying. I got a 2-1. With all yeah, this, well, all right. nonetheless. <laughs> no, I, no, they didn't have any first out. So. Mm. Oh, what about the chewing? All the chewing, that's what did me in. I was just chewing everything. Gurning. I, I can't, yeah, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't say I ever gurned excessively. I did do mm. some gurning, yeah. but I was more of a, you know, in America, by the time we were all on it, we would just sit around and massage each other. I had a, a friend, a gay guy, who would just massage my head all night long. And I'm just talking to people. Well, and I, I became an expert in massage because of what, you know, hours and hours of massaging each other. You probably woke up with a bruised head from all those hours. <laughs> oh man, I had, a, I had a friend who like he like bit his cheek off almost. He almost bit through his cheek because that's like some. Maybe it's because the stuff that gets mixed with it. Because I'm talking 10, 15 years later on, and I think it might have yeah. all been mixed up with who knows what. But anyway, and so you started. That's how you started, and then. You know, this anxious kid from uh, near Liverpool. How do you then become a smuggler and dealer? Oh, it's a very gradual process. And it was expedited by the arrival of Wildman. He got out of prison, came to America in about 96, 97. Got him a place near the Georgian Dragon British pub. Thinking he would just have some beers with the expats and behave himself. But he just started to... Well, he rented that place out to Colombian crack dealers. And he started to introduce me to all the people of the night. By the time he'd moved over to, to Tempe, Arizona, his, his apartment there, he's it was just 24-hour parties. And that's where I met Russian mafia, Italian mafia, Native American street-walking, transgender sex workers, gangbangers, um, transvestites, Mexican mafia people, it was uh, striptease dancers, all doing ecstasy for the first time and telling each other their life stories. I mean, even in the places eclectic as America, the, the melting pot, perhaps some of these people wouldn't have crossed paths, but all in ecstasy, everybody was just opening up. And it was through those connections that, you know, Wildman was just this big, confident guy, wherever he went, everyone would just look at him, he was so big, and he would talk to anyone, complete opposite of me. So he opened the door for me into that world, and that's where I, the connections were made for the criminal enterprise. And Wildman is this is a friend of yours from back home. He's there. He's my best friend from childhood. He died last year. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. When we were all arrested, the prosecutor had him as the lead enforcer of the Atwood Enterprise, but she had him. She had everybody ranked in order of seniority. He was number three. His okay. girlfriend, Wild Woman. A really tough scouser, tiny but deadly, was ranked as number two. And you were number one? Yeah, the, it was called the Outward Enterprise. Sure, sure. Yeah. Man, I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your friend, by the way. That must have been devastating Oh, he's still He's protecting me now against all the trolls and the enemies, and he's got me through all the recent wars. Yeah, there have been a few of those, haven't there? I, yeah, I guess that comes with the comes with the territory of being like a big YouTuber and stuff. I mean, I saw James English as one of them. For those who don't know, he's a big uh, podcaster as well. And there's been a bit of a bit of beef, one would say. Yeah, he tried to take me down. I mean, the mission of my channel has been to protect women and kids and predators. And once I got into that area of exposing predators and reporting on high profile cases, I thought the whole world would be behind me. But no. I've got, I got trolled, insanely trolled. I've lost my YouTube channel twice in the last month. The UK government has called me into the police station twice in the last month. I've been court ordered to stop reporting on certain abuse cases. They're all coming after me for my activism. James English, I believe he just jumped on board for his own egotistical reasons. He had a guy on last year called Darren G who said, We've recently made up, me and Darren G, but he said James English brought him on to destroy me because James English wants to be the number one in the podcast arena. 
And since James English started to attack me, he's thrown shade on my conviction, trying to say I was involved in dubious things. But what you learn in prison is people who accuse other people are always the ones doing those things. And since James English has started attacking me, people sent me his conviction and he's convicted of beating a woman up at McDonald's, spat in her face, grabbed her by the hair, and I think punched her in the face. And if anyone wants to Google that, it's on the James English spat. There's a Daily Mail article and numerous other articles. So it doesn't surprise me someone like that is going against the guy whose mission it is to expose people harming women and kids. I, I mean, I can't speak because I don't know him. I don't know very much about him. He, he does have a lovely accent and uh, that's, that might be distract people from, you know, if you've got that kind of Scot- very Scottish, very Scottish accent, um, which is nice. And, you know, your, your accent's lovely as well, but it sounds more like mine, I suppose. I'm sure when he's not threatening women, his accent does sound lovely. And I've got to admit, you know, I was supporting him for years. All these attacks came out of the blue. I was recommending him to the high heavens, collaborating with him, with him and sharing guests. And even now, I'm not trying to destroy him. He's trying to destroy me. He's launched two massive attacks against me. And I'm just being forced to defend myself. I've got nothing against him. Our success is tied together. Whenever he has a, a guest on that I've had on, all my videos about that guest start to get huge amounts of views. So it's really immature and egotistical him to be launching these attacks upon me but i've been forced to defend myself and if he's going to cast shade on me he's forcing me to put it out there that you know he's attacked the woman at mcdonald's and he's convicted of that i guess the problem with, with, with what you're saying about just about um anyone who accuses people they're doing it themselves like you wouldn't want to stick to that too much because i guess your channel was accusing a lot of people of pedophilia well here's the root here's the root cause of my passion for that i was incarcerated for six years with 90 percent people who were injecting drugs and what I learned was I thought a heroin user was someone who was, you know, under living under a bridge, out stealing all day and, you know, scum of the earth, lock them up, throw away the key. I was My mind was completely warped by the media. Meeting these people, hearing the sad stories, thrown away as kids, molested, raised on the street, seeing their parents die and not given any tools to deal with it then they were on these hardcore drugs because heroin really makes you not think about those things. They were self-medicating. And what do we do? We criminalize these people who've been abused as kids because to finance the drugs, they go into crime, women go into sex work, or men go into stealing, dealing, um, robberies, things like that. And my mission has been to try and get to the root causes of things. And the root causes of crime. And it became apparent to me that childhood sexual abuse is a massive root cause of crime. Look at all this crime out there. You could trace it back to the perpetrators, something bad happening to them in the childhood. And I'm also passionate about it because something happened to me in my childhood. And to this day, I'm still um, not come to enough terms of it in my own head to talk about it on camera. So, you know, when I started to, help other people on my channel it was most people got out of prison telling me their stories and it was a reoccurring thing that things had happened to these people and then i started to interview survivors like the epstein case like maria farmer before she was legally banned from speaking to anybody and um it was my passion and the views we were getting on those videos we got 60 million views on that genre that we had to delete recently Uh. to, to stay alive on youtube it's because the channel was reaching so many people and exposing what was going on and changing people's minds that oh. all these attacks started to come about because there are people who don't want this information getting out there. But that's an example, I suppose, of when there's a time when you do accuse people of stuff and it doesn't mean that you were involved in it, I suppose. But uh, that doesn't necessarily, I'm not talking about James English. I don't know enough about that. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward 
at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Do you think what what happened to you then was part of why you went into crime? Well, I don't want to make any excuses. I come from a loving family and I had a good education. And hearing the sad stories of the prisoners, it made me feel twice as guilty for what I'd done. If you're just thrown away as a kid or raised in a care home where horrible things happen to you and you haven't got a proper education, your chances in life are really reduced. So, you know, I had a really good upbringing and I take full responsibility for all the stupid choices I made. I was worth a couple of million in the stock market. I didn't even need to be getting involved in drugs. But because I went from a shy, anxious person in the UK who nobody knew, to this name in the rave scene, English Sean or the Bank of England, my ego became as big as the Grand Canyon. And, you know, that's what it's all about, ego. I didn't need the money. Yeah, I was addicted to the drugs lifestyle, but I was addicted to the attention. Because when you're the man, you're living in a million-dollar house on the side of a mountain, and you're throwing (laughs) parties for 10,000 people, and you got you know armed to the chief security team protecting you. Your ego's out like this. Beautiful women are coming up to you all night long, thanking you for the parties. Men are coming up to you all night long, giving you a hug. I love your ecstasy. So all of a sudden, you've gone from being a nobody in a little town in in England to living out in the you know the snoring desert and being Mr. Cool Guy, like a character wow. out of a movie. And that was just, I, can't imagine I, never wanted, I never wanted it to end, to be honest, because I was so emotionally mature. I took a SWAT team smashing my door down for me to see the harm I was causing society. But, you know, they, they say, Sean, some people have called me out. They said, you, you, you know, you had all this money. You couldn't possibly be doing this drug trafficking because there's no motivation for you to do it. I've written all this about Pablo Escobar. He was worth, the estimate was worth, you know, up to 30 billion. His brother Roberto says, Pablo, why don't we just buy our own island, kick back? We won't get killed by rivals. We won't end up doing life in prison. And Pablo looks at him and he's like, I'm just paraphrasing now. You want me to kick back, you know, on a deck chair, sipping a margarita on some boring ass island when I'm running this business that employs tens of thousands of people. I put the president of Colombia in power. You want me just to give all this up? It's it's it feeds your ego. This you know the, the, you you just got all this stuff going on in your life that you've built up, 
and it just feeds your ego. And because of that decision, Pablo Escobar died before you, before you ended up in Colombia. Before I became the the drug pin of Medellin. <laughs> yes. Man, it's so funny because we just had um, Will Storr, who's a, a writer, journalist on, on the podcast, and he's just written a book called The Status Game. Um, and it's all about our need for status and how that drives us in, since evolutionary times. In, in a tribe, there would have been three ways to do it through through dominance, through um, success, like you're good at like fixing a wheel or, or making a fire, or, or virtue, signaling to everyone else that you're a good guy. So I suppose, and he's talking about how the problem is you're always comparing it to like, there's never ever a point where you're just okay with it. Like he talks about Paul McCartney, how he got upset that um, it was Lennon McCartney and all the songs. And it's like, you know, Paul, you've got billions or hundreds of millions of pounds. You're the most respected person alive today. John's dead. He's not even here. And still he wants to change it around sometimes and put McCartney Lennon instead of Lennon McCartney he doesn't like that Lennon comes first and their songwriting credits there has to be some way to measure status when you've got all the money in the world what there's got to be something some other way to measure status covering the royal family I learned that this is a your hierarchy of titles who's going to curtsy in front of who <laughs> there's always human beings need some kind of structure so they can measure themselves against other human beings it's mad it is mad here you are with this 700,000 700, YouTube subscribers. You found another way to do it, which is a, exactly. a far less harm, harmful way. Less and harmful I've read a book called Ego is the Enemy recently. And the ego is constantly challenging us, constantly trying to trip us up. But, you know, when you've got all this and all of a sudden SWAT team comes and you're in there and you've got nothing and everything's stripped away from you and all that attachment to the material things, you feel it, the pain of it. And you go through a pain zone and then you feel euphoria and i remember writing to my sister well after i finally lost everything my girlfriend everything all my assets everything and i wrote to my sister and i said i've got this unexpected feeling of euphoria i'm not attached to that any of that stuff anymore i feel like a mad monk in a cave i was not expecting this but you still have this huge youtube following right so that's a different status I know, but listen, I, when I was in my teens, I'd watched that movie, Wall Street, Greed is Good, and that was my motto. I was completely mercenary. Fuck, I'll be fucked in the business world. I've got to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. I thought, like, I'm a long-range planner like the Chinese. Everything was military discipline. Now, I wake up with a smile on my face, do my yoga, go to my balcony, throw some monkey nuts to the squirrels, look on my <laughs> computer, and just see what's got to be done for the day. But you still have 700,000 people telling you how great it is, and I've got I love it as well. Not, I don't obviously don't have as much of a following, but I recognise in myself a bit of the ego. And there are people who get in touch, and I love it. They get in touch with what a great podcast, what a great. Po what if you suddenly didn't have that anymore? You know, I didn't have it. I didn't have it twice in the last month. And how does it feel? Well, I had anticipated it. My heart sunk when it actually happened, but I'd anticipated it. A whole team had a plan. We'd already, you know, implemented cyberbullying countermeasures. And we did end up launching a successful appeal. So, yeah, my heart was sunk. But you mentioned the ego thing. So you've got seven, almost 7,000 subscribers. And there are you know lovely comments coming in every day. But when your YouTube channel goes down, they activate. Those people really get vocal. So it was great, you know, to read all the stuff coming in. Just I felt loved. I felt completely loved, supported. And to see that all these people are behind me. But again, it's ego creeping in as well, isn't it, everywhere? I think it's almost not worth trying to, to get rid of that because we've all got it and you just, you know, it would just be a waste of time. It has a purpose, doesn't it? It has a purpose. Yeah, it's re positive reinforcement. It's 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 good. Tell me about, so when you were sort of the top of the, I guess we when we look back on these kinds of stories, we watch them in Goodfellas and stuff and it's like, oh, that's funny and crazy and stuff. But was there a nasty side to you at this point? Were you were you like sending goons after people? Were you getting involved in violent things to recoup money, stuff like that? Goons, that's a funny word. So the charges on my indictment were all non-violent drug offences. And I was a non-violent drug offender in my conviction. So there was no uh, record of any violence that I had orchestrated or ordered. Was there violence? Yes. 
and that violence came about because when you've got over 200 people working for you and your criminal enterprise is structured whereby you know you've got 10 to 20 heads of each faction under you and then they've got middle people under them and people at the street level peddling product there's always going to be situations arise whereby people aren't getting paid people are getting ripped off things are happening and people are going to get dealt with whether that information gets back to me or not is another thing but as the head of the criminal enterprise in a conspiracy case you're liable for everything that goes on sure for, from the people that are working for you yeah well the yeah. prosecutors didn't have any evidence of anything like that yeah so you get let's say you get a call or maybe let's let's make up a hypothetical person who would be you but isn't <laughs> called sean atwood and lives in canada and he gets a call saying this group have not paid for like hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of ecstasy what would that hypothetical person who isn't you do find out a means to get paid hmm. what does that mean <laughs> i'll give you an example of what the capability was so I got along really well with superstar DJ Kiyoki. Are you familiar with him? There's a movie called Party Monster, and Kiyoki's in that. And what happened was, we were all at an after party, everything was going well, and I left with my wife to get some rest. While I was gone, DJ Kiyoki, I think he threw a cigarette at one of my friends. And it like almost set fire to her clothes or something. So another DJ who was there, Mike Hot Wheels, grabbed Kyoki in a headlock and smashed his head into the wall. <laughs> and um, Kyoki had a massive ba uh, bodyguard with him. And he's looking at the bodyguard like, are you going to do something? And then my top sales guy, Skinner, pulls out a gun and points it at the bodyguard. And the bodyguard just didn't do anything. Uh, that All hell broke loose and that, hotel room got smashed up and Kyoki and his bodyguard fled the scene. Anyway, they fled the scene so rapidly and they were on such a cocktail of drugs that they forgot their records. What records? Kyoki's records. He was a DJ. He forgot his records. So I started to get calls then from like Ice-T's bodyguards because Kyoki lived next door to Ice-T saying that they were going to come to Arizona because I've stolen Kiyoki's records. That's his life's work. Oh, shit. So Kiyoki sent his bodyguard, this massive guy, to Arizona. He was staying at some raver's house. Now, if you've got 200 people working for you, you're all locals in Arizona, you know everything that's going on. So we knew this guy was coming. He'd come to get me, to Arizona to get me. So far, all right, we'll just go and have a word with him first. Violence will not be used, but we'll just do a display of force so he will back down and he will go home with his tail behind him tucked behind him so we showed up at the house he was at it was like this crazy ravers party house there was about three car loads of us me and my bouncers they were armed we just walked through the house he was in sat out the back and we just circled him and i asked him you know what his problem was and he said he, you know kyoki had sent him out there to I stole his records. I said I hadn't stole his records. I had no idea where the records were. What happened was, months later, his records were in the lost property department of the hotel and they were retraced back to him. But he saw he was surrounded by 20 guys with guns and he went back to California and they never came back to Arizona. Kyoki wouldn't even gig in Arizona after that. So we did have the capability to, if people attacked us, to show them we had sufficient, you know, means to counterattack or collect the debt. But fortunately, we never had to put that into action. There was no, like, running gun battles or shootouts or anything. But when people know that you've got that capability, it keeps things running smoothly. Plus, I had the protection of the New Mexican Mafia which were way more powerful in Arizona than, than any of the mafias. 
that was the house where I went to the first day I got introduced to them they had the rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV it's so it's it's so crazy because you see you're such an approachable and and nice guy it's so bizarre to imagine you sort of walking in with this group of people with guns and stuff and surrounding someone and then how does that person react are they sort of and was that Kyoki or Kyoki's bodyguard you had his bodyguard he sent his bodyguard out to get me so he was on a he he was come to Arizona to get me I was defending myself this was an act of aggression against me by someone who thought i'd stole these records sure we, we, we've since made up you know once those records were found we've since made up and the apologies were issued but i went there with my people to show my capability knowing that that guy on his own didn't stand a chance you showed your status no violence would happen was he nervous how did he look in that yeah, moment he shit, his body he shit himself yeah yeah oh man well, how did you get caught? We've got to move on because I'm worried about the time and I want to yeah, get onto your book in a bit. So, <laughs> sorry. It's so fascinating that it's taking longer than, than typically because it's just such a uh, fascinating story. Uh, yeah. yeah, how did you get caught? What happened? So there was 10 witness statements, including Skinner, who was my top sex, um, ecstasy sales guy. So Skinner was a little brother. We, we always we used to like be close at the raves and stuff. When I first met him, he was like eating out of dumpsters. He was pretty much homeless and smoking crack. He rose up in my organization. He ended up with a good woman, had a house and a kid. But then Wildman came over and I started spending more time with Wildman than him. Again, it's like ego and, and jealousies Status. and insecurities and human foibles just getting into the mix. So Skinner didn't like wild man because of the attention he was getting from me and skinner launched a firebomb attack on wild woman a firebomb comes through wild woman's apartment's window almost sets her on fire and then these gangsters show up saying get in our car with your product we'll take you to safety thinking she was that dumb she was just going to get in and she was going to get jacked but she's hard as nails. She was like, who the fuck do you think you're fucking talking to? You think I'm that fucking stupid? I don't know you guys from fucking Adam. She didn't get in the car with him at all. But we found out it was Skinner who was behind that. Now, Wildman at this time was in federal deportation prison. He was deemed a menace to society by the judge on his first deportation. So I had to send Mission Impossible possible, Mission Impossible style teams around the world to keep smuggling him back in because he's... His behavior was so demented, he just kept getting deported. So he was stuck in this deportation camp. Wild woman gets firebombed. Wildman's like, right, as soon as I get smuggled back in, I'm going to kill Skinner. So as soon as he came back, as much as we tried to talk him out of it, he was just out to kill Skinner. My friend Joey Crack showed up at Skinner's apartment. Wildman was in there with every weapon under the sun. He had golf club, Hammer, knives, all kinds of knives, pliers. And Joey Crack got grabbed as he walked in and almost something bad done to him until he realized it wasn't Skinner. So this was at this point, Skinner had already gone to the police. He got so scared. He'd gone to the police, turned us in, and left the state. Has anyone spoken to you about the film rights to this? Yeah, the film rights are with one of my agents in um, London. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. Who would play you? It'd have to be someone in the twenties, because all this mm. did, all, I did all this in my twenties. Yeah, I don't know any actors in their twenties, and I can't think of any actors right now. Oh, well. <laughs> Doesn't matter, does it? Maybe we could shave your head, and you could play me. <laughs> I'm in my thirties. I'm I'm thirty-two. You look young. Do we look the same if we've got? Yeah, we, I, I could do that. I could work if I could act. <laughs> I had laser treatment on my unibrow, but I had thick eyebrows you? like you in my twenties. Yeah. Ah. Well, I bet you regret that with these lovely babies. Have you got a hairy back? If you've got a hairy back, you can play me. I've got a very hairy back. I even went for la- I went for laser treatment um, many years ago. Me too. Yeah, it didn't work. I'm still hairy. <laughs> me too. I had four treatments and then the SWAT team came. I was supposed to have about 10 treatments. I'm thinking about going back and resuming the treatments. I've done the same, exactly the same thing. I did three or four and I didn't do the full thing. And now I've got like a fucking carpet on my back. Why did you stop the treatments? Well, I left the country. I went to Medellin at that Uh, time. I bet it's a lot cheaper these days and more effective. (laughs) I was getting them for free because I was working at The Sun. And I know everyone hates The Sun, but it was the only job I could get at the time uh, when I was 
21 or 22 yeah. and I hate I hated it and I, I ended up getting them to pay for a flight for me to go out to Medellin or something and then I quit my job when I was there yeah. but they that's how I got the hair done because I said oh I know I'll do a men's health thing <laughs> for the paper so I'll get a free hair removal thing yeah. so I got like a few of them done and I could tell that the, the place I went to because it was expensive and I could tell that the place I went to were a bit like pissed off because they were like we've given you the article like, we've done an article in the sun it's not really got them any, anything and now they keep doing my back anyway long story short Harry back still. What can you do? I got a bit to add on to that then. It's quite funny. So the woman who was doing my hair removal, laser hair removal, this was just weeks before the SWAT team came, said to me, let me do your ass." And I said, yeah, I do have a hairy ass, but that's my last line of defense if I ever get arrested. And I'm, <laughs> I must have tempted fate because bam, a couple of weeks later, that was it. SWAT team. Jesus, what? So it, I mean, obviously it's a joke, but I mean, is that is that a thing that that men are more likely to rape other men in prison if they don't have a hairy ass? So I'll give you an example. First off, prison rape is so common in America. You've got to go to rape class to get taught how not to get raped, which is a complete waste of time. You just oh watch a God. video of some predators in the day room. Young people come in, they're hungry. They take food from the predators. They're in debt. So next day they say, hey, you're right, you got to pay for that. Got no money. I can't possibly pay for that. Well, you're going to get stabbed up unless you go in that room over there and do whatever that guy says. And if they do fall for that, it's called getting becoming a prison punk, getting turned out, and there's no coming back from that. They're rented out as prison prostitutes. So the conclusion of the rape class was, if you've got to uh, prevent rape, you've got to report it. But if you report anything, you're a snitch, KOS. So a young prisoner was gang raped after the rape class and nobody reported a single thing. So anyway, so I got moved to a new prison one time where I didn't know anybody. I didn't get along with my cellmate. He was a serial home invader, torturer, who'd been breaking into people's houses, tying them up with duct tape and taking ball-peen hammers to their kneecaps. Mm-hmm. And he um, he had some AB guys were coming in, Aryan Brotherhood guys who'd, who'd like kill child molesters and stuff. And, you know, they were just, like, testing me out, really. They do, like, a heart check oh on God. you. They were like, you know, fucking, we're going to get ourselves some limey ass. We're going to tap that limey ass, that kind of thing. You know, implying that they were going to rape me. So I fucking pulled my trousers down, showed them my hairy ass, and said, are you sure you want, you sure you want to rape this? And they were like, God damn, is that a nest of tarantulas down there? And they all cracked up laughing. I'll tell you what, Andrew, humor can sometimes get you out of a tense situation. But thank God my ass hadn't been laser manscaped because I wouldn't have been able to pull that trick that day they want i suppose they want to imagine that it's a woman i don't know because i'm not of that mindset (laughs) yeah but the hairiness the hairiness would put that image out i suppose but i also i think that that's not about the hairiness it was like you say it was about the humor i think if you you bring humor into it suddenly you're reminding everybody that you're you're all human and you're you're real people and you're joking and there's a a bit crazy as well if you act a bit crazy i saw people fight crazy people in prison it's called rule 22 no, Rule 11, sorry. It's called Rule 11 in the jail, if you classify it as mentally ill. One guy was a Golden Gloves boxer, the head of the white gang. He was clicked up with the Italian Mafia. He'd won all his fights. And he fought this Chicano gang member who was Rule 11. And this fight lasted forever. Pieces of teeth getting knocked out. The next day, the guy, the Golden Gloves boxer's hand was as big as a grapefruit. All his knuckles were messed up. And he quit being the head of the whites after that. The Rule 11s have got crazy strength and they're very unpredictable. So some people do play the crazy card as well so people will leave them alone. Yeah, I've always heard that as a, as a thing. We've t- we, I guess we've talked a lot about sort of these crazy adventures and stuff. Um, but, but what about, I mean, how you felt, you know, day to day, night to night, you're going to sleep in a cell. It must have gotten you down. Did you, what, when were you at your lowest? I was at my lowest one and they told me I was facing 200 years. I was in the Shit. county jail for 26 months fighting my case. That county jail was classified as the jail that had the highest rate of death in America. According to Nat Geo, who did my locked up abroad, they said 52 people died in there over five years around the time I was there. So when they, you know, dead rats in the food, cockroaches crawling all over us at night time, guards murdering mentally ill prisoners, my body just completely covered in 
bleeding skin infections and bed sores. They banned my girlfriend from visiting me. She was my lifeline. And they said I was facing 200 years. So I was just ready to just slash my wrists and bleed out at that point. But what stopped me from doing it was I was going to say goodbye to my family and friends. I was allowed seven photos. So I'm looking at the photos of my mum, dad, girlfriend, sister, and um, getting really sad, thinking my mum's going to get a call saying your son's killed himself in a foreign jail and I couldn't bird a thought. I put my mum through that and that's what stopped me from killing myself. So when, when I finally got sentenced to nine and a half years then, that was one of the happiest days of my life. Because I could actually see when I was going to get out. It's time to talk about today's sponsor, Issue. It's a platform that allows you to turn your PDFs and other creative projects into something that really pops off the page. It turns them into these uber-modern book-like media with pages that swish by and make an impact. And what's great is your projects can be formatted specially for social media. As an example, I use Issue to create pitches for TV series and book ideas to send to broadcasters and publishers, while others use it to produce magazines, brochures, and other material. It's a way of showing something a little different to the traditional static PDF. Rather than scrolling down one of those PDFs, you have these space-age interactive media that move around and fit all different devices. It works seamlessly with other tools like Canva, InDesign, and Dropbox, so it's perfect for creators, designers, and marketers, and you can even start using it it for free while the premium features give a more customized experience get started with issue today for free or if you sign up for a premium account you will get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use promo code edge that's issuu.com slash podcast and use promo code edge at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account that's issue.com slash podcast with promo code EDGE. Yes, I mean, somebody said, I had a guy who does assisted suicide on, on the podcast, calls himself Dr. Death, and he said he reckons prisoners who are, who are in for life should have the option to 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 opt out of life. What? Where do you stand on that? Well, they do. It's called a hot shot. And one of the most common ways of killing people in prison is through a hot shot. So you just OD on heroin. And a guy I know who had cancer, he tried to do it, but he um, they had him on such strong drugs for the cancer, he didn't die. Well, that's why that's why that's not the same, is it? I guess it's no, it's no good. Nobody wants to risk that and then come out even worse and still being alive. Um, whereas if it was assisted suicide, it would you know it'd be much easier for people to do. But it's it's just such a moral moral quandary, isn't it? It's an issue. I mean, how easy yeah. is it to do? I had another friend in prison who was a. Uh, he tried the Dr. Kevorkian method and all kinds of things went wrong when he tried to do that. So then he tried suicide by cop. He robbed his own bank and the cops didn't shoot him. Uh, so so you, you believe if it wasn't for your mum, you wouldn't be here today? At that moment in time, when I was trying to steer my mind into killing myself the heartbreak my mum would have experienced was what stopped it from going full on. And I'm happy you're still here because you bring a lot of joy into the world through your podcast and it's it's a fascinating uh, podcast <laughs> that people should get on to and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's something. You bring a lot of joy into the world. Um, and also through your books and we should talk about your latest book, Who Killed Epstein, Epstein Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton? <laughs> Tell me a bit about that. Good grief. Is this going on YouTube? Because I don't want to get you banned off YouTube. Why Why is it getting you banned? It's ins- it's ridiculous. You're not... <laughs> what, do you think I should not put that bit on YouTube? Well, it triggers the algorithm. I got banned because an algorithm searching for the kind of words used in QAnon and conspiracy channels was finding those words in my videos. And a human being restored the channel after the first termination then the algorithm took it down again. And we've analyzed the videos that the algorithm took down. It's all to do with like human trafficking, Epstein, sexual abuse cases, Prince Andrew, talking about those kind of things. I think that once you have so many followers, there's a cut off point where the powers that be are gonna handle the situation. And I just appreciate that they didn't take me out, that I didn't just wake up get in my car and it exploded 
The guy I was living with, Hot Wheels, for 10 years, he was glad I moved out because he thought they were going to come there. And Wildman also warned me that they would come for me if I kept going down this road. About Epstein and stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Well, what I could do is, I mean, the YouTube, my YouTube doesn't, it gets like 1% of my views or listens or whatever. So I could put this yeah. part in the audio podcast which I don't think has the same sort of, you know, you can talk about anything on an audio podcast uh, and maybe snip, snip it from YouTube if it's going to be taken down. Yeah, it's your call. I mean, it's, your, it's your platform, whatever you, whatever. Mm. I did do an interview with a, with a pedophile and it was all right. It didn't get taken down. I got a lot of abuse for it. I wasn't defending him. Did he mention any big names? No, because he was an 18-year-old. He was the head boy of his school. I'd been researching it. Oh, my God. He's a non-offender. But he's the head boy of his school, so I was—I came across him and I was like, "Would you do you want to Jeez. come on my podcast?" To to this day, it's the one that like even people who who listen to you know religiously to the podcast to listen to every episode. A lot of them yeah. have said like that's the one I I can't listen to, and then other people have said like, "Whoa, that I've never heard anything like that because it's a real interview with a guy talking about it." And uh, you know, I took him to you know I tried I pushed him about some of the stuff he was up to, uh, not not offending you know, but he was just staying. He's the head boy of his school. It's just, it's not right. Well, I had a, a um, woman called Dr. Sarah Goodon, and it was a podcast called In the Mi- Inside the Minds of Pedophiles. And she went on a TV program of a pedophile. It was a non-offending one. And he said, look, if you just like want to burn us and hang us and lynch us, you're never going to learn how to help us. And he went on trying to give that side so that people would understand how to prevent his behavior. But there's a knee-jerk reaction, isn't there, to anything to do with anything like that. And that's why people use it to try and destroy other people's reputations as well. In these podcast wars, everybody is calling everybody else a paedophile. It's ridiculous. It's so childish. Every day I look at another video and people are getting paedophiles or they're getting called snitches or they're getting called gay. Like, you know, like gay is a hate crime. That's insane. We we yeah. we had like um Stephen Knight came on here, who's this uh, anti woke guy. He doesn't like the woke uh, movement, and he said that a lot of people message him saying racist, and he says he, there's no proof for that. You've never you know for, I've never done anything racist, and yeah. if you're going to call me racist, I'm going to call you pedophile. So now he replies to them all and says you're a pedophile, but then some of them threatened him with legal stuff, yeah. so he stopped doing Cause it because it's defamation. Yeah, I, I've yeah. got a lawsuit against James English because of what he posted last year. All this defamation, there's, you know, if someone says something about you that there's no proof of, it's defamation, it's illegal. Shit, man. Is that going to go ahead? Well, we've got until the year after the defamation was committed to go full on. And I've tried to make the peace of him multiple times, but he just keeps sending me obscene, threatening messages saying he's going to come up on my doorstep and beat me up. Jesus, man. Even, he- even last week, I just sent a message saying, you take your video down, I'll take mine down. Let's not speak about each other again. Let's just, you know, move on with our lives. But no, he started this thing and he's forcing me to react. This is the um, ex-boyfriend of Kerry Katona, is that right? Yeah, yeah. If you just if you Google James English spat, the whole article will come up of how he assaulted the woman at McDonald's. Yeah, and you got the two of you. I would say are probably the the two biggest indie podcasters in the UK. And no, this- nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. Really. True Geordie's got 2 million plus subscribers. Brian Rose has got 2 million plus subscribers. I would describe myself as a medium-sized podcast. That's podcaster. so crazy. I don't no even, I don't even know who those people are. Rogan Isn't had, f- what, 7, 8 million subscribers? DJ well, Vlad's got, what, 6, 7 million? So I guess I'm looking at the audio podcast. I don't know about the YouTube that world that much at all. In the audio, in the in the rankings, you see uh, like your name. You'll see uh, Chris Williamson's another one. You'll see up near there James English, myself. I'm in those rankings as well. True, Jordy's the biggest consistently when he puts a podcast out. He gets the most views, I would say, on YouTube. Yeah, I got to get on his podcast. Oh, he's great. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna message him and good then chat two million fucking fuck that's insane yeah oh well fair enough then yeah i don't know i don't know what i'm talking about so yeah go on tell me a bit bit about your book because i do want people to buy it you know that you've written it now haven't you so let's get let's get people to buy it so who killed epstein then just from from the back to keep it all legalistic within you know what we can we had to go over this and make legal changes before it was published i'll just read you what the back says because it's legally something that's documented in the public domain by the news and the courts. 
So Virginia alleged that Epstein ordered her to have sex with Prince Andrew three times, including in an orgy on the Pedo Island, which included underage European girls. On the Lita Express, Bill Clinton was photographed with Epstein's sex slaves. After Epstein was suicided, both men denied any knowledge of his crimes. As well as committing abhorrent acts of paedophilia for decades, Epstein had been managing a child sex blackmail operation that had ensnared some of the world's most powerful people, ranging from royalty to ex-presidents. Survivors have claimed that Epstein filmed some of his guests raping minors. Whoever ordered the hit on the super predator had a lot to lose. This book examines the roles of Epstein and his accomplices in the honey trap operation and the likelihood of a royal prince or an ex-president being co-conspirators in his assassination. Bam. And we can't say anything else in case we fall foul of the law. The law. <laughs> but, I mean, is it, so do you believe 100% that he didn't kill himself? Yeah, 100%. It's a joke. Never in the history of the MCC, that jail, which was built in the 70s, have, on the, has it been recorded that two guards fell asleep simultaneously. And then the cameras just conveniently malfunctioned. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Everything was lined up for an assassination. Oh, it must have been quite a quite a an image, and I'm not I'm not saying he deserves our sympathy after what he did, but just the image itself is quite shocking uh, to think of. I guess a few people coming in and tying a noose and and just hanging him. Well, when I interviewed two Tonys for the book I wrote about him, the Mafia philosopher, when I was in his cell, and this was a guy who'd whacked people from, you know, he'd left dead bodies from Arizona to Alaska. And he was taught by the um, Bonanno crime family by Charlie Bats Battaglia, who whacked people from coast to coast and never got caught, how to dispose of bodies and kill people uh, expertly. When I asked two Tonys, how would you kill me right now when I was in his cell, just thinking he would explain it to me, he just jumped up, grabbed an electrical cord attached to a heating filament called a stinger, got behind me very rapidly, tied it around my neck and started to choke. So I, you know, I trusted this guy, but he took it to the point where, you know, I could feel the full effect. Oh my of it. god! Got about to go unconscious, you know, and I tapped out. But if he'd have gone all the way, he could have killed me very rapidly, and that pressure, in all likelihood, would have damaged my hyoid. Hmm. And it was the hyoid fracture that is more common in homicidal strangulation than it is suicide. It's one of the main pieces of evidence that Epstein was suicided. Right. And then they would have lifted his body up and, and as if he'd hanged himself. Exactly. Wow. To be have been a fly on the wall, I can't you feel like that kind of cell should have had a, a camera on it all the time or something. Yeah, it did until the day of the doing the dirty deed. <laughs> it got switched off, didn't it? It conveniently malfunctioned. Fucking hell. <laughs> and they removed the cellmate the night before. <laughs> it's insane, isn't it? It's amazing that's not spoken about more. I, I know everybody sort of knows about it and everybody has this idea that he, did, he didn't really kill himself. Everybody's aware of that. But I don't think we're aware of the facts to that extent. And then you just feel powerless when stuff like that happens. You're like, well, you know, what, I guess that's why you've written the book, I suppose, to shed. They could whack her tomorrow, Galen. They could whack her tomorrow. They know, we know, they killed him. They, but, the, the, but the cost of what he could have said was way worse to them than us knowing. She represents the same cost right now because she knows the same stuff. They could take her out tomorrow before it gets to trial to prevent her from exposing what he was going to expose. And they would know, we would know, two in a row. But that liability is so much. She's in a huge danger zone. You, when you say they, I think you're you're saying Clinton or Prince Andrew's or their entourage. Allegedly, the big people who were in his orbit, the big names who he either honey trapped or were co-conspirators, and I wouldn't rule out Gates either. I mean, these are billionaires, royalty, presidents. Prince Andrew's in trouble now, isn't he? I, I think they're. He's had more more allegations exactly. against him. He's got a lawsuit filed against him. 
So it's human nature. If you've got all the money and power in the world to take people out, represent a liability to you. One of my favorite books was The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon. And just reading all the shenanigans that went on back then. They were assassinating each other, their own family members. Power, image, ego. These things don't change. These things are just going on now in a more technologically sophisticated environment. I think that's a, a good way to good way to end on. Do you, do you think is there stuff I, I, that you felt you wanted to talk about more that I could ask now, or how do you feel? Unless we've got anything to add about our hurry backs, I'm definitely <laughs> going to look into continuing mine. the uh, procedure because it's annoying on a hot day. I'll send you photos of mine. Isn't it annoying mine. on a hot day for you without sweatiness or when you're working out? It's just not very sexy as well. It's not nice for my girlfriend to have to look it's at. It's not very sexy. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible it is horrible and I, I like to think of my you know fairly suave man I'm wearing a shirt for you today I don't often do that <laughs> you know but you're a big guest and a big name and stuff and I thought I'd wear a shirt and then uh, if you knew if you only knew although it's funny I mean most people don't look very good naked anyway do they particularly men well you're a handsome so. chap and a very smooth talker but the thought of that hurry back <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it <laughs> exactly well if I if I was single I wouldn't put it on my dating profile I'll tell you that <laughs> have you tried to shave it yourself of course I have I have to literally <laughs> I, have, I, I have to dangle the, the shaver yeah with the head out on the cord dangle it up and down my back and I can't get the central region which leaves this not. patch the sides, yeah. yeah, sides. Easy, easy, easy. And I'm dangle, dangle, dangle. And there's this, like, mat in the middle of my back. Now that was inspiring. It's so funny because Sean has such a gentle and curious manner and a demeanour about him. It's so gentle. It's hard to imagine him doing crime boss things. I had to remind myself while talking to him from time to time that he'd done such hardcore, you know, ecstasy smuggling and, and whatever else it might be. It's clear he's an absolute workaholic and it was a delight to see how he's turned his life around to do a lot of good in the world. Good on you, Sean, and thank you for taking the time to come on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. Sean's bonus segment is really, really revealing, and you'll find that by signing up to patreon.com slash andrewgold or going to the Apple subscriptions. It's the VIP section um, on, on my Apple page. Uh, remember to find a link to Sean's YouTube and podcast pages, as well as his latest book, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton, in the show notes. Again, any of Sean's fans on here, please do subscribe and stick around. Get in touch to tell me how you found this podcast through him. I love to hear from listeners and leave reviews on Apple or CastBox or anywhere else you can. Uh, I'm still super excited about my new blue tick on Twitter, by the way. So do follow me there on AndrewGold underscore OK. Uh, same on Instagram. Sean is on Sean Atwood on both. As many of you know, I've been moving house the past few weeks which means I've had to get a lot of these interviews and the voiceovers done in advance. In this part of the show, I typically read out new reviews, but I'm recording it too far ahead. I will catch up with them in a few episodes' time, though. Remember to check out my sponsor. It helps me massively if you just take a look on issue.com. That's I-S-S-W, well, two U's, I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and using promo code EDGE for 50% off a premium account. In the next few weeks, there are episodes with former Love Island contestant-turned-podcasting brainiac Chris Williamson, genetics professor Catherine Page-Harden, and forensic psychiatrist Dr. Soham Das. I'm really excited to bring those to you, and I'll see you next week. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.